Uh, this is our last week in our One Another series. Next week we start Advent, which is their countdown to Christmas. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Ephesians. If you have trouble finding Ephesians, go to the middle New Testament, turn right, uh, and it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There's a little trick for you. Galatians, God's E, uh, it starts with G, so it's God. E is Ephesians, electric, so God's electric. Philippians is P, power. Colossians is the next one, company. God's electric power, company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So go to the electric part of it. It's Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 4 eventually. Um, and so what we're seeing in, in Ephesians 4 is Paul wrote this letter to a church that he planted back in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus. He spent almost three years there, which is the longest part that Paul ever stayed in a church. He stayed there for three years, and he basically, you can read about it in Acts chapter 19 when you do your quiet times this, this week, he started a riot, which is awesome. And he didn't do anything, like all he did to start a riot was just have people come to Jesus. You see, in Ephesus, there was this official temple of the goddess Artemis. Say that with me. Artemis. Artemis, yes. Artemis is also, in the Roman uh, mythology, Artemis is also Diana. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt. So she uh, helped people go hunting, which is also weird because she was the goddess of small animals. So if you were going hunting, you were praying to Artemis to bring you an animal. At the same time, the animals were looking to Artemis to protect them. It's weird, but it worked for them, I guess. She's also the goddess of the moon. She was the goddess of chastity, and to make things more confusing and keep her busy, goddess of chastity and the goddess of fertility. <laughs> Figure that one out yourself. There's a, there's a lot there. Chastity, goddess, fertility, goddess. Sort that one out later on today. Uh, there were people in Ephesus, and in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, which is one of the ancient wonders of the world. It's now ruins. Um, but while they were there, there were a bunch of people who made a ton of money off of selling trinkets and, and little tiny brass figures and wooden figures, all to honor Artemis. She was responsible for a lot of things. So the silversmiths would make all of these little things saying, if you want to have safe passage on your journey, on your sailboat, if you want to have a good day sailing, I guess, by this statue, offer this sacrifice to Artemis. And Artemis will do these things for you. If you want to have a successful hunt, Artemis will do these things for you. If you know any hunters that are just getting skunked right now, I know one, uh, you could just send them to Artemis, I guess, and they would have a successful hunt. If you want to have security, if you want to have income, if you want to have anything, good luck, it's all found in these people inside of Artemis. So these silversmiths would go around and they would have a trinket for just about everything that you can pray for and get something. And there was some kind of magic that was attached to it. So they had quite a racket going. They would make a ton of money off of this stuff. And so Paul comes to town and he brings his, his entourage, his, his merry bunch of men and women, I guess. And he goes through the city and in Acts chapter 19, it's a brief passage and it goes quickly. He starts casting out demons left and right. And so do his people. They're battling this demonic power that is sitting and has hold over the people of, of Ephesus. It says that he's baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. People would speak in tongues and then they'd prophesy, meaning they would tell people what God is trying to say to them. They would be the go-between between these people and God. And then 
he would go speak in the Jewish synagogues. After a while, after three years there or so, he got kicked out of the synagogues and he rented one of the public halls and kept things going in Tyrannius, so just outside the city. But Paul was disrupting a lot of the things that, was, that were happening in Ephesus. People became to believe in Jesus and they found out that this God that Paul talks about through Christ and the Holy Spirit was more powerful than Artemis could ever dream of. So much so that people would bring all of their sorcery things back uh, and they would bring them to the town square and then they would publicly burn them saying we don't want anything to do with Artemis anymore. Acts 19 will tell you that they brought the scrolls and, and the supplies out to burn and it, and it was worth 50,000 drachma, which today, counting inflation, $50,000, that doesn't sound like much, right? In today's dollar, they would have destroyed about $14.75 million worth of income for these silversmiths. Now we're talking, right? That's a lot of money. And so the silversmith com community wasn't really too thrilled about it. Would you be too thrilled about it either? No. And so we read in Acts uh, 19, they start a riot to try and get Paul arrested and thrown out. And so they come to this amphitheater, and this amphitheater is still standing today, and they start chanting for, three, for two hours, right? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the, the historians say that the whole place was just shaking, kind of like what happens at stadiums when the team scores. You know, it just starts shaking. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And here's Paul, right? And it says in Acts 19, he wants to go out there and address them because Paul's feisty. And Paul's people go, hey, buddy, not a good idea. And so Paul escapes. He leaves. And then later on, he writes a letter to this church formed in Ephesus. And it's called Ephesians. This is the background that you have in Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians can be divided into two parts. Once again, if you know Paul's writing, it's first you are this. The second half is now do this because of the first part. So the first part of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is all about who you are in Christ. And Paul's very specific in the first chapter. He goes right to town and he starts saying this. You can look at it if you have your Bibles open. Uh, in Ephesians, the, I don't know how many times... But we see over and over again the phrase in him, through Jesus Christ, in Christ, under Christ, for Christ, in him, uh, through the Spirit. And so those aren't by mistake or coincidence. Every single one of those prepositional phrases of in him, for him, through him, all of those are direct attacks on what Artemis taught. And so Paul's still bickering with these Artemis people. In Christ you are saved not Artemis. Through God, you have this, not Artemis. Because of his spirit, you have this, not Artemis. And so Paul is, is being specific in what he's saying. Everything that we have, your identity, comes only from Christ, not from Artemis. Every good and perfect gift comes from Christ, not Artemis. So Paul's focus on the Ephesians is to have this. So people are so ingrained in their identity in Christ that they don't forget whose they are, what they are, and why they're here for. And so for the first three chapters, you see Paul going to town. He says, it's by faith you are saved in Ephesians 2. And then he goes on to describe, because you're saved, because of Christ, you have a calling, you have gifts to do good things in Ephesians 2.10. And then he gets to chapter 4, and then the tone shifts. Because of all of these things that I taught you through Christ, not Artemis, 
Here is how we're supposed to go on with life together, which this is why it fits in with our one another series. So Ephesians 4, 3, Paul says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you're called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father over all, who is over all, and through all and in all. And I believe Tyler taught about this last week, uh, if you all were here. Paul goes on to tell the Ephesians and us that some of the ways that you and I can live up to the calling is by having a unity together. It doesn't mean we all wear the same clothes. It doesn't mean that we all have to cheer for the same team. We have a brand new Packer fan here today, which is great. Uh, But it, it means that when it comes to our faith in Christ, we're united on that. We're united on the essentials. We can bicker and joke about the non-essentials, but in all things that we have love. This is how we live into the one another's. And because of this, Paul says, I want you to grow up in this. So these things don't divide the church. I want you to mature in your faith in your pursuit of Christ. As they mature in faith and, and in the community, there's one practice that can, add, that can add to all of this. And it kind of undergirds what Paul is talking about here. If you're in your Bibles, look in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. I'll turn there real quick. Um, I'm sorry, go to verse 5, okay? Or first, what am I thinking? Verse 15. Instead, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect a mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So Paul says, how do we undergird all of this community in order that we thrive, in order that we have unity? The aspect that Paul gets is speaking the truth, telling the truth to one another is a vital part of living in community with one another and pursuing Jesus together. When love and truth are done together, the truest form of community we will find. Our maturity in Christ and our maturity as a community is shown by our ability to be honest with one another. Some of you are here and you go, yes, this is my permission to put my dukes up and go on truth-telling people. I'm going to go out and drop some truth bombs. I'm going to tell them off, right? I'm going to make this post and I'm going to tag all these people because this is the truth. And then Paul told me I could, right? And so this gives people seemingly this permission to go out and be jerks. That's what, not what Paul is saying. I've had some of those conversations where it's super confrontational and it's backed up with, this is just telling the truth in love. And like, this doesn't feel loving. So Paul says, look, tell the truth in love, but he gives us some criteria to follow. He gives us three things that we need to be careful of when we're telling the truth in love. And I'll make this deal with you. If you can follow these three criteria with telling the truth, go ahead and drop the truth bombs but keep the criteria. And after after checking the criteria, you still feel free about it, go right ahead. But I think this might change your tactics, okay? The first criteria he gives us is to be careful of your motive. Okay, the motive for telling the truth when, when we're speaking truth to somebody is this, that they are filled to the fullness of Christ. If your truth telling to someone does not lead them to be filled with the fullness of Christ, you're doing it wrong. Here's what he says in 4.11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip people for the works of service. This is one of the places where Paul lists the spiritual gifts and the offices of the church, okay? 
in verse 12, this is, this is why there's giftings. All of us have a gifting. All of you fit into these things somehow or way or another. And the reason is this, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It almost sounds redundantly repetitive, correct? It sounds like he's repeating himself a lot, and perhaps that's the point. Our motives for telling other people the truth is so that they become mature followers of Christ, attaining to the fullness of Christ, which is a very interesting phrase when you dig into it. The word fullness is the Greek word pleroma. You want to say it? Pleroma. Okay, I heard this side. Come on. Pleroma. Okay, I think it's on the screen, or it should be, maybe not. Uh, Pleroma, it's, it's a uh, military, it's a, a, a nautical term. It, picture a boat. When you have a pleroma, it's a, it means that everything on your ship is filled. Every position you have is filled. That means sailors, rowers, back then they rowed a lot. It means that, the, and then you would have soldiers. So things are filled. You have every position full. In the New Testament, it's used in this regard, referring to the body of believers. Okay, so you are a nautical term right now. When the body of believers have plurama, it means they are filled with the power, the agency, the riches of God that comes only through Christ. So this is the motive that Paul is getting at. This is the concept that Paul is trying to get us, that you would be mature and filled up with the power of Christ. And this thing that he's talking about goes all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1. And you can see this or maybe circle it, go back to it, I'll read it to you. And God appointed Christ to be head over everything for the church, which is the body. And here's the word, uh, the plurama of him who fills everything and every way. So here, the church is the body of Christ, and Paul's goal for the church, for you and I, is to have this fullness. We can paraphrase it by saying that Christ so identifies with the church that he fills it completely, that he desires to be present throughout the church in all of his people all of the time. So when he comes back to 4.13, the goal of the fullness of Christ that he's talking about, to be filled with with the fullness of Christ, is to be fully saturated with Christ, fully relating to Christ, fully embodying Christ and his presence through the world. The fullness of Christ is the church actually being what God intended it to be in the first place. The people of God together. The people of God together fully flourishing, fully like Christ. This is the first motive when it comes to telling the truth. If I'm approaching somebody or you're approaching somebody and your goal is anything else than to push them closer to Christ, check your motives. Paul is concerned about this because in the city of Ephesus, there's still a bunch of philosophies that were growing or going around and they were carrying Christians off with them. And they were going, moving from Christ back to their way of sorcery. It wasn't that they'd stop following Jesus. They would still have Jesus in their back pocket, but they would incorporate other things into their Jesus life. And so they would go back and they'd say, you know what, I can worship Artemis and I can still follow Jesus. And Paul's going, no, 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 that's not full. You're not full to the brim of this. In Jesus, I can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I I can have a small trinket of Artemis when I go sailing and pray to Artemis. But just in case Jesus falls asleep and Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not good. 
that's not the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ means that there's no room for anything else. It's like when you go to get your coffee and you ask the, the, the person at the counter to leave room and they don't. What do you have to do? You have to go to the trash can and dump some out, right? Paul's saying, I want you so full that there's nothing else that can fill you. You need to be full of Christ so that Artemis doesn't fit in or any of the other philosophies or anything that come in through the town. Ephesians uh, 4.14 says, then once you've received the fullness of Christ, you will no longer be infants. Uh, Another way to translate this is you'll no longer be babies. You won't be tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and cunning and cunning craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. You can't have the fullness of Christ if you're constantly be carried away by things other than Christ. When you're carried away in other directions, you're being tossed back and forth. You aren't growing. Why? Because you're not stationary long enough for you to grow some roots. Paul says you're supposed to be anchored in the truth of Christ. Today, it might not be sorcery, but we still find ourselves incorporating other beliefs, saying Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that, and then we'll be fine. Whether it's Jesus with a side order of Buddhism, or Jesus with a dash of individualism, Jesus with some consumerism, Jesus and my horoscope, Jesus, as long as he goes along with my sign, I think I'm an Aries, but as long as he goes along with this, Jesus, as long as he goes along with my crystals, or, or better yet, Jesus, as long as he goes along with my stock portfolio, Jesus, as long as he goes along with my career goals, Jesus, as long as he brings me the relationship that I want, Jesus, as long as it doesn't hurt my reputation, Jesus, as long as it doesn't mess, mess with my image. And Paul says, don't, we can't do that. Because ultimately what ends up happening is that our hope and our growth will tend to trend towards the other things more than they will Christ. Then, like verse 14 says, we're being tossed around. Uh, the, The image there is also you're gullible enough to go along with these other things, and then you won't be secure. You won't be anchored to the hope. You won't mature. And that's the point he's getting at. The writer of Hebrews says it this way when she writes about the anchor. She says in Hebrews 6, 19, we have a hope that is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, all of these things we we have, the only thing that's going to hold us in the midst of the storm, and we've talked about the context of Hebrews and the trials that were coming, the only thing that will hold you is if you're firmly filled up with the hope of Christ and that becomes your anchor. So when we approach someone to tell the truth, The motive needs to draw them back to the firm anchor that is in Christ so that they will be filled with the fullness and not have any room for anything else. Filled with the fullness so that they may be made mature. First criteria, the motive of telling truth. Next, the posture of truth. Look in verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth In love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. The posture of telling the truth is love, which in some instances is extremely difficult. Because if you're like me, and and maybe you're not, hopefully, we really like to tell the truth in order to get our vindication, right? I'm going to tell this truth so that I can be right. I'm going to tell this truth, and I don't care what happens as an aftermath of it. 
Because if it's true, then who can argue about that? How many of you have been in a situation like this? You know the truth. And you don't, don't uh, nudge your friend next to you. Just, just be cool. Uh, how many of you have done this? This is a problem. But Paul says this phrase, speaking the truth in love. And it's more than just a throwaway phrase. It carries with it this ethical system of truth, love, and again, this idea of continual growth. The word here used for truth is a verb. But it's, in, in its little translation, it's not just like one word. It's an entire phrase. It, it might better, my spell check hated this, but it said truthing in love is how it's supposed to be. So when you're truthing with other people, we're going to make up a word today. When you're truthing with other people, the foundation of it is love. And it's only found, this phrase is only found one other place in Scripture. In Galatians 4, it says this, Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Or have I become your enemy by truthing you in love? The concept of the phrase goes back to the Old Testament. Everything goes back to the Old Testament. Don't be afraid of it. Everything goes back to the Old Testament as something somebody does. Because of this, the idea of truthing is a relational term, and it has to do with covenant loyalty and and loyalty and faithfulness. A truthful person is the one who lives out the covenant obligations, both in what is said and what is done. Therefore, both truth and love bind us together. For we cannot live truth and violate our relationships. When we live this way, we give true assessments of facts and consider what is real as opposed as to what is an illusion or a lie. In other words, we tell the truth to one another in order to strengthen our relationships with each other while looking out for the, best person, or the other person's best interests, not your own. It's not about your vindication. It's not about being right or being deemed correct. It's about the other person living again to the fullness of being, or being filled with the fullness of the potential of Christ, living to the fullness of how Jesus made them. In eighth grade, I tried out for the, the, the school football team. It was flag football. It was at Friends Christian School in, in Yorba Linda, California. And I was uh, a bit nervous because I didn't like trying out for things. I'd always just made the club soccer team or was invited. This time I had to try out. In seventh grade, I tried out for the basketball team. I was cut. Not just once. Twice. Because they, they had tryouts. I got cut the first time. And then some people moved and there was openings. And I tried out again and I got cut again. And so I'm trying out again for a football team. I'm like, ah, oh, great. I'm going to get cut again. And so when it came tryouts, I had a favorite player named Jerry Rice. Have you heard of him? He's also known as GOAT, okay? I, he was my favorite player and his friend Joe Montana. They played for another team. But I loved these guys. Uh, I, I wanted to be like Jerry. Some people wanted to be like Mike. I wanted to be like Jerry. And so I wanted to be able to run just as fast as Rice did. I wanted to be able to catch a ball like Jerry Rice did. And so when it came time for tryouts, I went with the receivers. Because why not? This is what I am. I'm like Jerry Rice. I had 80 as a number. This is going to be great. And I go over there. And at the end of the practice, I'm like, this, this isn't working out. I can catch. I can catch really well. I played goalie in, in soccer. I was good at my hands. But for some reason, I don't know. Look at me. Do I look like a wide receiver? You can be honest. No. 
It didn't work out. But I was convinced in myself that I was a wide receiver. But I couldn't keep up. So after day one, I'm thinking of my chances going, I'm going to get cut again. These guys are so much better. After tryouts the first day, my dad picked me up from school. It was one of the weird times I didn't have to walk home. But my dad picks me up and he goes, how tryouts go, bud? And I went, dad, I want to be a receiver. But I can't, I can't keep up with him. I can catch anything that comes my way, but I can't do it. And my dad had this vocal cue when he would talk. And, and, and he would say something, and there'd be a long pause. And, and this cue was this. He, and, and I remember him, we're at the stoplight. He takes a breath and goes, well, there was a long pause. And that's when I knew something was coming. And he goes, you're not a receiver. You're not built like a receiver. Have you noticed that? Look at you. This isn't, he wasn't being mean. He was telling me the honest truth. Brad, your giftings are other places. Why don't you try out for linemen? Which makes more sense, right? And I looked at him and I went, but I, but, and then he goes, I think God has built you more to be a lineman and shaped you better in that way than you would ever be in a receiver. I think you'd be happier And I think you'd be able to keep up, and I think you'd make the team if you tried out for the right position. Now, was my dad being harsh? No. He was being a good dad at that point. He wasn't being mean. He wasn't being degrading. He wasn't wasn't trying to tear me down in any way. Instead, he was loving me. He was telling me the truth. He was correcting, and he was right. I made a far better lineman than I ever did a wide receiver, even though every practice I would say, hey, coach, how about a tackle option here? You know, I would try and get the ball, but I was a better lineman than I ever was. Why? Because the truth about who I am and how I'm built fits better with that than it is with the other one. I was living a lie. In that moment, I didn't need him to coddle me and say, live your truth, Brad, do this, do what you feel is right. I needed someone to say, This is the truth about you. Live the truth. Don't get caught up in what other people are. Just because all your friends are quarterbacks and wide receivers doesn't mean you have to be. And in telling me the truth, Dad saved me from the road that was intentionally going to lead me to disappointment. In that moment, I needed truth to lovingly correct me back to what is real, what is right. He was truthing in love. We don't have to look too far in our world to realize that we have some issues with truth. It's a difficult time. We have issues with truth partly because we don't like it when someone speaks the truth to us. We don't like it at all. We like to believe that truth changes depending on our situation, that truth seems to shift depending on our emotions, that truth changes depending on who's in office or who's in the room or who speaks the truth or even who hears the truth. And what we end up with is this. Truth is whatever we want it to be. And that's not truth. And I don't want to get into an argument about truth being objective or subjective here. That's for a different time and for a different three weeks of study of philosophy. But what we're looking at here is we avoid truth. Because we don't want to tell the the truth. What ends up happening is many go on believing lies that we tell ourselves and we end up going down the wrong path. And by the time we finally realize that we're on the wrong way, it's far too late. And it's too late to correct. I wasn't a receiver. 
The sooner I came to believe that, the better it would be. The sooner we're told the truth, the quicker we can develop and mature in our lives. When we aren't told the truth, when we don't tell the truth, we go on believing lies and we stunt our growth. And it hurts our community. It hurts you. Truth and love means to pull back somebody in a loving way, seeking their best interest of them, not you, in order for them to get back on the right path. That's what truth and love means. That's the, that's the posture we have, love. The last one is the results. Verse 15, go back to that one. Instead, speaking the truth and love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who, who is the head that is Christ. The results are probably most of the important things that we want, right? In everything that we do, we want results. And for Paul, this is what he's been getting at the entire time. Results. When we tell the truth in love, the result is that we grow up in Christ in everything we have. The phrase here, we will grow, as, as I read it, it's in the future tense, right? As in the Bible, it looks like we will grow. But a better translation reads this way. Speak the truth in love. Let us grow into Christ in all things. Living the truth in love means that growth and the res- means gr- mean, is the means of growth and the result of growth. It's not a future tense. It's a right now thing. You want to grow now? Seek the truth. Don't go chasing a lie. Going on believing lies will never result in maturity. Uh, I have a, a, a son. He just turned six on Wednesday. And I've been, uh, I've been kind of stretching the truth with him on some things. Uh, one of the things is uh, I told him the moon was made of cheese. It just seemed like a fun thing to do, right? And so one time he goes, hey, Dad, what's the moon made out of? And out of nowhere, I thought of the, the uh, Will Ferrell sketch with Harry Carey and went, cheese. Moon's made of cheese. And for the longest time, he believed me. And it was awesome, right? Until he gets to school and he says, the moon's made of cheese. And his teacher goes, no, it's not. And then he comes home and says, dad, it's not made of cheese. And I'm like, oh, man, you're right. It's not. The other thing I tell him is that we have eagles around our house and, and, and they'll, they'll call. There's a lake just over the hill and they'll be doing their chirp. And he goes, dad, what are they saying? This is my favorite one, and I hope I never have to correct this. I say, they're saying freedom. <laughs> that, that's what that means. When the, eagle, when the eagle chirps or whatever it does that the eagle does, it means freedom. Now, if I let Judah go on believing this, and if any of you tell him this, I'm, I'm going to be upset, but whatever, truth and love. If I let him go on believing this, it's not going to set him up to grow, right? He's going to get laughed at. I... I you know, and so at some point, I have to be honest with him so that he continue, continues to grow up. The eagles aren't saying freedom. I think they are. It's kind of fun to imagine. The moon's not made of cheese. There's other things that go along with these seasons that we kind of stretch the truth. But eventually, the truth has to come out so that he will grow, so that the result of Judah would be to develop into a man of God and a good man that he that God desires for him. As we live in the truth and love that are encountered in Christ, we express these qualities of maturity and truth-telling, we become more and more closely attached to Jesus. When we surround ourselves with the fullness and being filled with Christ, 
we mature into becoming, like Paul says, the head who is Christ, which is a weird phrase, and it might get even more weird. What Paul is getting at is that my leaning to be truthful and loving is that we have the ability to become who we already are. God has called you love. He has called you one of his children. That's who you are before you are anything else. The truth about you, before we start adding on more identities to ourselves, is that you are loved by God. You are a child of God. That is the basis of your identity. The basis of the truth behind you is to grow more and more into the image of Christ. That's who you already are. Fully grown and developed members of the body of Christ. When we add anything else to that, we dilute ourselves and we start chasing down a lie. Once we realize that growing up our, that, that growing up, our maturity is the goal. We are in a better position not to be so divided against each other. Because those things that end up dividing us and dividing the church are usually petty little differences based in personal bias, misunderstandings, and immaturity. Tell the truth in love. Make sure your motive is right. Make sure the posture is loving. And then you'll get the results you want. Now, there's this thing that happens, though. What stops us from telling the truth? What stops us from being honest with somebody? The first one I think of is, we don't want to hurt people's feelings, right? Oh, they're so happy with that. I don't want to mess with them. Uh, when, when you have an infection, okay, a few years ago, I was trying to attempt to jump, and this doesn't get off the ground too well. And when I jumped, I hit a box right there. Uh, it was at the gym. Uh, the The... What happened was I, one, I can't jump, but as it kept lingering, I have a permanent scar in my shin. It's pretty awesome. I'll show you later. Uh, but it, it cut myself, and it bled a little bit, and I just let it go. And, and uh, my wife and I have a joke about this. She, did, she told me it was no big deal, and so I, I think she was trying to kill me. But <laughs> as I let it go, I let it fester, and then after a couple days, it got pretty infected, Okay. When we don't tell the truth to somebody because we're afraid we might hurt their feelings, what happens is this lie starts to infect and starts to poison the rest of us. I ended up having to go to the doctor and wear a cast on my shin for a while because I didn't address the problem that I created by me trying to jump. I don't jump anymore. Okay? But the truth of the matter is I had an infection. I had something that needed to be dealt with. Many of us know some friends who are chasing down some wrong things, and we're just letting them go. And the more we let them go believing lies, the more they'll be infected. The other thing is we don't want to tell truth because we want to protect ourselves. We don't want to be that person. We don't want to be the person who's always confronting. And then we, we get down to this. We, oh, we don't want to be judgmental. Don't judge us. And we're afraid that if we say the truth, they'll say, oh, you're just judging me. You can't judge. That's, that's not what the scripture says. Paul says, don't, don't be judged lest you be judged. Jesus talks about that, but he's not judging, saying that something is right or wrong. What he's saying is don't judge somebody and condemn them to hell. That's not your job. But Paul says he judges the people in the church more harsh than he judges people out of the church. So if there's someone in here or someone in your life that's going the wrong way, you have the full right, if your motive is right, if your posture is correct, if you're looking for the right results to say, hey, buddy, you're heading down the wrong path. It's going to lead to destruction. And in love, 
Hopefully they come back and hopefully you're not a jerk when you tell them the truth. It's one thing to tell people the truth. That's easy part. But what if someone decides to tell you the truth? How does that usually go? What stops you from hearing truth? Some of it's arrogance. We think our way is the right way no matter what way you tell me this. And so I'm, and we call it stubbornness, right? I, don't need, I, can't, I can't receive truth. I don't have a, a place in my heart where I can understand what someone might be saying to me. I'm always right, no matter what. What I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing is always correct. That's not a good posture to be in. It keeps you from hearing truth, and if it keeps you from hearing truth, it keeps you from maturing in your faith. It goes hand in hand with this is pride. If I'm always right, I'm very prideful, and I can't ever hear a, correct, a corrective word. Some of this is based on another thing that keeps us from hearing truth is past wounds. Sometimes something happens to us, we're wounded by something, and instead of addressing the wounds of our heart that's happened to us, we build up this fortified defense that nothing can break through. Our shields go up and we can't hear anything. So anytime someone tries to correct us or say something, instantly we shut them down. We can't hear it. And all of this goes back uh, in, into our uh, root of everything is sin. We don't want to be told the truth because we're comfortable with this lifestyle, even if it is sinful. Speaking the truth in love also means that you have the ability to hear the truth when it comes at you. So it's one thing to tell the truth. It's another thing to hear it. Are you able to hear the truth when it's spoken to you? Are you able to correct when it is brought to your attention? Speaking the truth in love. Once you're confronted, hearing the truth and responding, once you're confronted with the truth, you have a decision to make. Will you change? Or will you go on believing the lies that you've been told? And sometimes it's the lies that you're telling yourself. Speak the truth in love. Hear the truth in love. Paul says this in the hopes that you and I would be filled to the fullness and all the potential that comes from living a life honoring to Christ. This is the goal. And I pray as you and I start having this community together, as we pursue Christ together, we have the ability to spur one another on in love and good deeds by telling the truth to one another. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that in you is found truth. You are the truth, the way, the life. And though we have confusing stories around us, though we have these competing narratives that tell us other things and they distract us, Lord, I pray that we can grow together in truth. That we have a right view of ourselves, that we have a correct view of you. That we pursue what you say about us and not what we feel about us. The truth is bigger than our emotions, Jesus, and I pray that you would expose the lies that we've been telling ourselves. Lord, I pray that you uh, would, your spirit would work in us that when we have to have that awkward conversation about truth, that our motives would be right. That it would be so the person we are talking with 
comes back to the fullness that is in you. That the results would draw them back to you. Not so that we can be right, not so that we can be more prideful or more arrogant or correct, but so that our brothers and sisters would grow. And in that, we would grow. So Lord, give us humility, give us ears, soften our hearts to where you would like to speak truth to us today. And when we're confronted with that decision, may we choose what is true, what is right, and what is ultimately from you. It's in your name we pray.